I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this is part of a series of podcasts we're publishing this month that are jumping off some great panels that I participated in at the Aspen Ideas Festival this summer. Uh, next up, everything that you need to know about the Supreme Court term in a deep dive. This was a really fascinating experiment. We brought together Senator Chris Coons, uh, former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, a panel of incredible journalists to discuss the blockbuster cases at the end of the Supreme Court term. Here goes. My name is Natalie Travers, and it, I am pleased to welcome to the stage our official introducer and host for today, Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you so much. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a deep dive on the most exciting Supreme Court term in recent memory. The Aspen Ideas Festival has had some spectacular panels over the past couple of days. This one, I hope, will really be illuminating. What we have done as an experiment is to convene not only some of the greatest constitutional lawyers in the country, but also a US senator with a special background in constitutional law, its best journalists, all to give their perspective on the incredible cases ranging from marriage equality to healthcare to redistricting and more. I am Jeffrey Rosen. I am privileged to lead the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. This is the only institution in America that brings together all sides, liberals and conservatives and everyone in between, to debate and educate themselves, not about political issues, but about constitutional issues, so that citizens can make up their own mind. And this deep dive is very much in the spirit of a constitutional conversation where you will hear a rich variety of arguments on all sides of these extraordinary cases. Listen carefully, keep your minds open to being persuaded and having your minds changed, and set aside your political preconceptions. It doesn't matter whether you think that the results of these cases were good or bad as a policy matter. I want you to engage with them as a constitutional matter and entertain the possibility that your policy and your constitutional views might diverge. And with that introduction, it is my extraordinary privilege to welcome to the stage my old law school friend and classmate and the U.S. Senator from the state of Delaware, Chris Coons. Thank you, dear. <laughs> I don't think I would have imagined when we were on that great road trip from law school uh, many years ago that we would end up here, uh, both here and with you doing your extraordinary work in the Senate, um, where you've been such a defender of constitutional reasoning but we haven't had a good constitutional conversation since that road trip, so I'm really looking forward to this one. It says something that we had a road trip that was dominated by a good constitutional conversation, so. <laughs> it was a pretty wonky uh, group. But you, you, back then, you combined a passion for serious constitutional analysis with a love for politics. You're in the Senate. How has your perspective on the Supreme Court changed? Um, that's a great question, Jeff, and um, thank you to Aspen Institute and uh, to Jeff and the Constitution Center and the other folks who will follow me. Um, one of the things that is uh, striking to me is to try and piece out uh, the conversation that the Supreme Court is having uh, with other branches, uh, with the country, 
uh, within itself in the opinions that it issues. And King versus Burwell, I think the Affordable Care Act uh, decision uh, is yet another in a long series of conversations um, across all three of those vectors. Um, and so to me, as somebody who is uh, charged with making laws and then trying to figure out how to help make laws that actually comport with constitutional requirements, um, something I've been puzzling over is whether or not the Supreme Court cares uh, when we sign on to amicus briefs. Uh, I've only signed on to a few, uh, but one of them was in the King versus Burwell case, and there were dozens and dozens of them. Uh, and Linda Greenhouse, uh, if I remember correctly, recently wrote a column where she said the walls of the Supreme Court are thick marble, but they're not that thick. Uh, and the fact that there were dozens and dozens of amicus briefs filed, and a number of them cited in the Roberts opinion, uh, and the way that the opinion came out and its impact on how the Supreme Court fits uh, and its tradition of judicial restraint in the face of a very messy and complex law that was in some ways inartfully crafted um, suggests that we're in a conversation that's more functional than I previously thought, um, that our signing on to amicus briefs and other briefs coming in that give real insight into how an insurance market would or wouldn't work actually had some impact, and that the Supreme Court, at least in a few of the cases we see today, uh, is more politically savvy um, than tone deaf than I had perhaps previously expected. One of the other things I've been wrestling with, um, just out of sheer frustration, is the relevance of political impracticability, uh, impracticability for Supreme Court decision making. So in the case of Shelby County, which uh, really blew a hole through a key section of the Voting Rights Act of 1964, um, the political class, certainly those of us in Congress who are a fierce advocates for an effective Voting Rights Act, um, took this as an intentional, arguably politicized death blow because the Supreme Court should know that we are not capable of reaching a bipartisan compromise to fix this hole in the Voting Rights Act. Many of my colleagues argued at the time. You gotta say, if you look at the, if you look at the decision and look at the case and look at the law, it has some real merits. And the fact that we are not likely capable, as we've just demonstrated again uh, last week, uh, of finding a bipartisan fix to the Voting Rights Act, you could argue really isn't the Supreme Court's problem. It's really our problem, or our problem. And so where you come down on the conversation that they're having with us on the possibility of the introduction of legislation and the resolution of problems, um, I think is a piece that I'm paying more attention to now than I ever would have before. I think the fact that the Affordable Care Act was almost certain to not be readily repaired if King versus Burwell had gone the other way is another important indicator um, that we're in a somewhat functional conversation. Last thought about how things have changed uh, today from before, I had never been involved in judicial confirmation processes. I've now presided in the last Congress, obviously. I'm a Democrat, I'm now in the minority. But in the last Congress, I got to preside over confirmation hearings for a dozen acquaintances, classmates, folks I'd litigated with or knew or uh, and it's really a very different process, uh, up close and personal. Uh, I felt great about the folks who ended up making it onto various courts, a district or circuit. Um, but it is, a, it is a messier and a more human process, exactly who gets noticed, who gets pushed forward, who gets their blue slips returned or doesn't, and, and how it all plays out. Um, perhaps that's no surprise. Um, but on a Thanksgiving ride back in 1989, uh, I don't think I was looking that clearly uh, at how politics impedes on and informs nominations, decisions, and then subsequent legislation. Completely fascinating. 
so say more about the court's That's perspective. probably the only time this year I've talked that long and had that response <laughs> from anyone. <laughs> well, it's true. You have a unique perspective, and I want to learn more about it. So was the debate in King v. Rowell a legal or a political debate? On the one hand, you might say this is a debate between Chief Justice Roberts' version of purposivism and Justice Scalia on textualism. Justice Roberts says you have to look not only at the text, but also Congress's broader purpose. Scalia says just look at the text. Was that what it was about, or do you think that Roberts and the other justices were also swayed by political considerations? Uh, I, my personal view is that Roberts uh, was being, uh, was continuing his tradition of judicial restraint, uh, of deference to the politically elected branches. Uh, and um, to me, what was particularly uh, spicy or interesting was the, the side shots at Scalia. That's how I took it. Um, he certainly could have advanced the point uh, that you can only understand text in context by citing many other cases or opinions. He chose to cite two Scalia opinions, uh, and rather pointedly. Uh, and Scalia's rejoinders uh, about words no longer have any meaning, and what was his phrase, jiggery-pokery? I still don't know exactly what that means. Maybe Neil understands what jiggery-pokery is, but it, it sounds bad. Um, there is a conversation here between justices about how, how much freedom does the court have to look beyond the plain meaning of four words. Uh, frankly, I think it would have been um, very harmful to the court's reputation uh, as an institution above partisan politics uh, if what was so clearly um, an intentional and hard-driven effort to bring down the Affordable Care Act by searching for one brief clause that was not completely artfully tied off uh, and then litigate, 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 uh, to bring that all the way to a close and succeed in really reversing access to affordable health care for about 6.4 million people in 34 states, uh, I think would have really affected the court's standing in the country. And I, I don't know this directly, obviously, but my superficial impression is that the Chief Justice is conscious that after Bush v. Gore, uh, there is reason to be concerned about our Supreme Court being perceived as having some partisan political leanings or an inclination towards an intervention uh, in partisan political activity. Nothing has been more at the center of the division in Congress uh, in the last few years than the Affordable Care Act. And Scalia's uh, sort of parting smack about it, it shall henceforth be known as SCOTUS care, uh, is a reminder that even between the justices, um, their role in affirming and upholding and sustaining the Affordable Care Act uh, is, is quite divisive um, between and among the justices themselves. It is divisive. It led to rhetoric not only like jiggery-pokery, but I think Scalia also uh, accused the majority of argol-bargle. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Did that, does that rhetoric strike you as uh, unusual? It, it strikes me as unusually personal, um, although you know, Scalia um, has, has not restrained his spleen uh, or, or has given vent to his dislike for a very wide range of other justices of... of um, both judicial and legislative actions, so I don't know if it's unusual from Scalia. Um, but the way in which the back and forth, both in the opinions and uh, in the commentary, uh, has, has been sharpened, I do think is unusual. Uh, I think there's been a lot of commentary on is Roberts really a conservative um, that I think misses the point. Uh, I think he is an institutionalist, and I think he's an advocate of judicial restraint. Um, and I think, frankly, both of those are um, admirably and historically conservative. So I, uh, for what it's worth, 
agree and uh, think that he did show the same commitment to bipartisan restraint in the Affordable Care Act case as in the marriage equality case. But critics of, of, when I made that argument, people said, well, what about Shelby County, the voting rights case? And what about Citizens United, the campaign finance case? He wasn't restrained there. Uh, you can respond better than I. What's, what's the response well, uh, in I mean, that there's, case? There's a way, um, I dislike those outcomes politically. Uh, I, I am thrilled with the outcome in the marriage equality case. Uh, I dislike the outcomes um, in the other cases you referred to. If you look at Shelby County, um, as I said earlier, I think there is a way to look at the law within the law and the case within the boundaries of the case and not look at the political consequences of congressional dysfunction and be persuaded that um, there shouldn't be a 40, 50-year-old formula deciding which states are subject to preclearance or not and that the fact that Congress can't get its act together and reenact a critical piece of the statute is really not um, their concern. Um, where he chooses to engage in judicial restraint uh, versus uh, activism to repair uh, or to um, see more clearly a challenge uh, to a law um, does strike me as falling more clearly on liberal or conservative lines. Um, I was struck uh, by Robert's um, uh, comments, I think it's in, in his uh, dissent uh, in the marriage equality case, uh, where he really urges those uh, who are looking forward uh, to celebrating a new marriage the opportunity to participate uh, in the exercise of marriage, he says very sympathetic and supportive things, uh, but then closes by saying, but don't celebrate the Constitution. Uh, that had nothing to do with this decision today. Um, if I remember correctly, Robert's uh, commentary within the marriage equality case fairly sharply reveals that he thinks it's judicial activism um, for there to be sort of an outreach um, that, that sweeps in those states that had not yet recognized uh, the right to marriage. And what do you think about the majority decision as a constitutional matter? And tell me if you think that Justice Kennedy and his colleagues were channeling, changing public opinion about marriage equality, or if they were simply interpreting a broad right of autonomy that they've recognized in previous cases. I think both. Uh, I think they took notice of the fact that there's been um, significant uh, change in our nation's view of this most fundamental uh, institution of culture, marriage. Um, but I also frankly think they constructed a compelling legal argument for it. Um, what troubles me most is that unlike other key landmark civil rights cases, uh, Brown versus Board or Loving versus Virginia, uh, this was a narrow opinion. This was 5-4, a narrow majority, I mean, um, rather than unanimous uh, or a strong majority. Uh, and I frankly am concerned that for some of the justices who are on uh, the minority side uh, in um, the Obergefell, I cannot pronounce that name. Obergefell, right. it's Obergefell's, a hard G, uh, I think. Uh, in that case, uh, I, I think they will uh, subsequently uh, find that they may be misread uh, exactly what the, the standard of review should be and, and what our legal treatment should be uh, for one of the most uh, fundamental exercises of uh, individual liberty, which is the choice of whom to marry. Uh, what will the next uh, legislative battle over uh, LGBT rights be? Already there are claims for religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. Will Congress and the states be considering this? Right. Um, I think and a, um, a, a statute that would add um, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation uh, to protected status against discrimination uh, is our most pressing challenge. Uh, it is striking uh, that after this decision, once it's fully implemented, it's possible for same-sex couples in a dozen or more, dozens of states actually, uh, to marry in the morning, 
uh, to be thrown out of their apartment uh, in the afternoon to be fired from their job before the end of the day uh, completely legally uh, because there are no uh, barriers to discrimination on the basis of a sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, I think for the vast majority of Americans, they find that a very curious outcome, uh, that we should have a, a Supreme Court a case that recognizes that um, marriage equality is now going to be the law of the land, but to still have a significant number of states where there's no barrier uh, to employment in terms of access to the public accommodation or employment or many, many other ways. Um, that's going to be tough. Uh, that, frankly, will be an uphill fight uh, to get that enacted. I am hopeful that the cultural changes we've seen move from a few states to a majority of states uh, to now the whole country on this issue, marriage equality, uh, will be followed by fairly broad and sweeping action. Um, other countries that are our um, fellows, uh, that are uh, countries to which we look for some indicators what's going to happen, um, allowed um, gays and lesbians to serve openly in their military years before we did, uh, with really no harm to unit cohesion or unit effectiveness. Um, other countries have allowed full marriage equality for years. Uh, the idea that both of those would have happened in the United States, and yet we don't have a basic barrier to discrimination, uh, I, I think is unconscionable. And I think that's one of the most important pieces of legislative work that remains in front of us. There was another case with huge... Oh. But, I, but I, also, I also have to say, um, the religious liberty piece of this is going to be very difficult for us to work through in a thoughtful way. Um, you know, religious liberty has to mean something more than uh, I can refuse to bake a cake uh, as a commercial baker. Uh, I can refuse to allow a reception uh, in a hotel that I own. And uh, the Hobby Lobby case has opened a very difficult conversation about the extent to which ownership, corporate ownership, and the religious values or the social views um, of owners um, can then be imposed upon employees or customers or communities. Um, this is a country that was really founded on both individual liberty um, and respect for religious liberty, inclusion and non-discrimination, and full freedom to practice uh, by one's own conscience or faith. Reconciling these in this area is going to be particularly challenging for us, and I think calls for a, a really thoughtful and thorough debate. There was another case with huge implications for our political system, and that was the Arizona redistricting case, where a majority of the court, five to four, Justice Ginsburg joined by Justice Kennedy and the other liberals said that Arizona could create a nonpartisan districting commission and that uh, partisan gerrymandering could be dealt with on that grounds. What's the implication of that case? Well, it's got um, some terrific, I think, positive implications uh, just from a practical perspective. Uh, the gerrymandering of congressional districts such that there are very few uh, truly competitive districts and increasingly uh, members of the House and in some cases even the Senate uh, only fear a, a primary from a more sharply partisan opponent uh, is not constructive uh, for our, our Congress or for our national dialogue. Uh, and so those states like California, like Arizona, that have adopted, have adopted nonpartisan uh, redistricting commissions have generally seen progress uh, in the direction of reducing uh, the gerrymandering of districts in purely partisan ways. So I think, practically speaking, in terms of its impact on our country and uh, our Congress and our deliberations, I think it's positive. Um, it was an interesting um, interpretation of what the legislature is, uh, and this ongoing conversation about plain language of legislature um, was obviously at play here as well. Um, but there were also some very significant unintended consequences that would have occurred if that case had gone the other way, uh, because referenda have been used to move a whole range of policy issues forward. Uh, and if referenda was somehow undermined or held illegitimate, uh, as an expression of the popular will, I think there would have been negative consequences to that as well. Last quick question. Um, you've expressed 
uh, respect for the institutionalist perspective of the court and the chief justice. In the Senate, there are a whole bunch of constitutional lawyers. You've got a great background, Ted Cruz, uh, Senator Lee. Is the standard of constitutional debate in the Senate at the level that you would have expected or not? At the level that I would have expected, that's a great question. Um, well, I'll, I'll just say this. It needs to be, uh, I think, at a higher and a more sustained level. Partly my respect or admiration for those who have an institutionalist perspective on the court is informed by my real concerns about uh, folks in the Senate um, who are not concerned about our institution. Uh, the Senate really has not functioned very well. I know this is news to everybody here. Um, in the last five years since I got there, although I don't think I'm the sole cause. Um, but the extent to which we are able and willing to listen to each other and compromise with each other uh, is something that, that I think has to be strengthened and accelerated, and that takes advocacy and engagement um, from citizens of, of all walks of life and all backgrounds. Um, the Constitution is an important, is a vital, is a world historical structure that allows for meaningful debate, that allows for a country to keep moving forward and improving um, its commitment to core foundational principles. That only happens when we have respect for each other and a willingness to listen to each other and a willingness to engage in civil debate. Um, I am impressed with the level of skill and talent of uh, certain advocates you mentioned, um, senators uh, from Texas and Utah, uh, but I'm not impressed uh, with uh, the commitment across the whole body uh, to compromise and to consensus and to strengthening the institution. That's something I hope to continue to work on uh, in the years ahead. Beautiful statement of the importance of civil discourse for constitutional conversations. Chris has generously agreed to stay. He'll take your questions at the end. And now, please join me in thanking Senator Chris Coons. Beautiful. Great job. I, f I feel something like a circus barker here, but I think I'm uh, barking some great uh, talent. It's now my great pleasure to welcome the former acting Solicitor General of the United States, Neil Katyal. Neil has another distinction. Uh, as some of you know, he is my brother-in-law. It's the only and, way I get invited to these things. <laughs> and we are going to start an incredible reality show called Brothers in Law. <laughs> He's not joking. No, we're, no, we're very serious about this. If, if you want to invest, talk, talk to us after the show. Uh, Neil, you are among the most astute commentators on broad trends in the court, and this was a historic term. Last year, you wrote a really influential piece noting that the unanimity level was at the highest rate since the 1930s. Uh, this year, it was substantially lower. Why was that? Yeah, so let me uh, first just begin uh, by a little general uh, background for those of you who aren't lawyers. You know, so there are nine justices on the court, five appointed by Republican presidents, four by Democrats. Justice Kennedy appointed by President Reagan in 1987, widely seen as the swing vote. And in past terms, we've seen, for the last 10 years since Chief Justice Roberts uh, was put on the court, we've seen basically so-called conservative results largely coming from the court. Now, there are other trends as well over the last 10 years uh, that have been happening. One is the Chief Justice really was pushing the court, I think in listening to the kind of conversation with Senator Coons, about unanimity on the court. He was looking across the street at Congress about their inability to get along and trying to drive the court toward uh, consensus where they could. Last year, uh, for the first time since, uh, since 1942, uh, the court was unanimous in two-thirds of the cases it heard. Now, the court only hears about 70 cases a year, 
They don't have to hear anything. It takes four justices to vote to hear a case. But there, you know, there is this image of this very divided court, but actually last year, uh, very high rates of unanimity. That's something the Chief Justice had talked about at his confirmation hearings. Now this year, we didn't see that. We saw a much lower rate of unanimity. It was still 40%, which is, you know, um, uh, which, which is substantial, but it wasn't the, the striking numbers before. And instead, we had something fairly unusual, at least, uh, you know, something that hasn't happened in, in really a long time, which is the liberal perspective dominating at the court, in particular, Justice Breyer driving the court toward, I think, uh, towards results that the political left are far happier with than the right. And we can talk about some examples uh, later on. So uh, the New York Times, confirming your point, noted that something like 52% of the cases were liberal this year, the highest rate since the Warren era. Why was that? Well, so, I mean, I think that there are a bunch of things going on. Um, let me isolate two. One is, frankly, as I say, the court doesn't have to take anything. The cases that the court took this year were pushed on the courts uh, by a, a fairly radical agenda by, by lawyers. So let's just take, for example, King versus Burwell, which is the Affordable Care Act case uh, that the court decided last week. So. That's a case in which basically Congress and the president said there are 50 million Americans who are uninsured. Uh, they lack health insurance. Now, why are they uninsured? Because they have pre-existing conditions uh, and it's really hard to get insurance because the insurance companies deny them. Or they say, if you want insurance, you have to do so at a very high, you have to pay a lot uh, for it. Um, and so Congress said, we're going to ban that. That's wrong. So what'd they do? They said, we're going to require guaranteed issue so that insurance companies have to insure anyone regardless of pre-existing conditions, and we're gonna have community rating programs so that the rate you pay, in a, pay, rate you pay for insurance is what it is in the community. Well, that sounds good, but there was a big problem. Six states had done that, and it was a disaster. Insurance markets cratered. Why? Because if you know you can sign up to buy insurance anytime, you wait till you're in the ambulance. So if the fire insurance companies had a must-issue policy, you'd wait until your house is smoldering, you'd never pay premiums, and then you'd call up and say, I'd like my fire insurance. So that's what was happening in those six states. One state, Massachusetts, did it differently. They said, all right, we're going to ban discrimination against those pre-existing conditions, but at the same time, we're also going to mandate that everyone have a certain basic amount of insurance, the so-called individual mandate. And if you can't afford it, then we'll subsidize it for you. That's the so-called Massachusetts solution. The Supreme Court three years ago, in a five to four decision, said that was constitutional. You can allow people to buy insurance. The question in this case was, well, what about the subsidy provision? The subsidy provision in the law said, it was, it's very complicated, but basically at one point it says in order to get subsidies through a health insurance exchange, the health insurance exchange shall, shall be, quote, established by the state. Established by the state. And the conservative challengers said, well, actually these health insurance exchanges were set up in many states by the federal government. And so they aren't established by the state. Uh, the problem with that is if you read that statute that way literally in isolation, it would doom the entire act. It would be as if Congress passed this massive piece of law with a poison pill built right into it, which is just nonsensical given the Massachusetts example they were basing this all on. And the Supreme Court, six to three, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, says last week, that's not the right way to read the statute. The right way to read the statute is to read it in order to make some sense of it. And that's, uh, and so I don't actually think it's the chief acting institutionally there. 
Um, I think it's really just plain common sense. This case should not have been at the court. It's a very good example of why it's not the court trending liberal as much as is some extreme cases being brought by conservatives. Is it, it's the Kennedy court as well. Does that explain uh, things? He, he was more liberal this year than before? Yeah, so Justice Kennedy did, uh, did, uh, swear, did side with the left in, in the so-called left of the court in uh, eight of the ten big cases uh, this term, including, most importantly, uh, the same-sex marriage case. Um, and uh, I think that vote was something predictable. Um, you know, he has, since 1996, pioneered uh, gay rights uh, in, in the courts. Um, uh, but nonetheless, you know, it was still... Uh, you know, one of the more moving experiences in my life, sitting in the court, uh, I guess it was four days ago, uh, and watching that decision get uh, held down, get handed down. Um, you know, walking into the court on the plaza were probably about 500 uh, opponents of, of marriage equality and 500 supporters. And as the decision was being read in court, uh, it was exploding on the Twitterverse and whatever. So when you walked out of the steps, there were like five, 6,000 people celebrating the decision, um, holding arms, singing the national anthem. Um, it was uh, as powerful a moment on those steps as, as I've ever seen. You were there for King v. Burwell as well. What was the reaction like then? Yeah, and I think it was, a, you know, it obviously doesn't have the same, it has a massive importance to the country. It didn't have the same, quite the same emotional impact. Um, but again, I think there was a, a large amount of celebration out there. And, and, you know, people talk about those two cases, and they're really important. And indeed, for this marriage equality case, I think it's probably the only case that our children's children will really know uh, among uh, in our lifetimes. I mean, it is, it is like Brown versus Board of Education, whether it's a five to four decision or nine oh, I don't think matters. This is the US Supreme Court saying something extremely powerful that no matter what, how strongly state, states believe that marriage should be limited to a man and a woman, even if it's 100% of the population, that is off the table in our constitutional democracy, that, uh, that our gay and lesbian uh, 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 citizens have the same rights to marry as anyone else. Um, and it is, uh, it, it is soaring rhetoric in the opinion. Uh, Chief Justice Scalia, in excuse me, Justice Scalia in dissent accuses uh, uh, Justice Kennedy of being pompous, pretentious, fortune cookie jurisprudence. At one point he says, I'd put a bag over my head if, in order to, if, if I had to write an opinion like this. Um, it, there's some very strong language in the dissent, but I suspect in generations to come, people will quote those words that Justice Kennedy said, to the, said, uh, said in his majority opinion, they are really what it is to me American. Uh, do you think that this level of invective is unusual historically or not? It is a little unusual. I mean, Justice Scalia is brilliant. I mean, he is um, uh, easily one of President Reagan's greatest legacies will be Justice Scalia. He's changed the game in so many areas. So, you know, you were starting to talk with the senator about statutory interpretation. So Justice Scalia has this view that when Congress passes a law, you read the text of the law, but you don't read all the legislative history and stuff around it. Why, he says, because that's often doctored. It's advocates trying to get their particular views and committee reports and so on. So you read what the law that Congress passes. He's won that debate. He has persuaded a majority of the court to do that. Now he's gone further, though, and said, well, just read the text. Don't try and understand the purpose behind the text. That's a losing argument. And so we're seeing a, a, sometimes Justice Scalia overplaying his hand um, and reaching results that I think don't, aren't going to command a majority of the court. 
you had a fascinating op-ed the other day in the Washington Post. Today. Today. Uh, I read it online yesterday, uh, saying that, because uh, you sent it to me, because it was so good. But, anyway. <laughs> but it's uh, a creative and fresh argument that this court uh, has been more pro-criminal defendant than any in recent history, and people are missing that trend. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the federal there were federal, seven federal criminal defendants that went to the Supreme Court this year in cases. The Supreme Court sided with the defendants in six of them. Six or seven. I, don't, I think we'd have to go back a long, long way to see something like that. So the question is, what's going on there? Is it the court changing? Is it the case selection, kind of like the King versus Burwell Affordable Care Act? Is it just a function of the cases? I, don't, I think it's more than just a function of the cases that came before the court. I do think that this court is starting to think a little less in law and order terms. Really, Justice Alito, uh, President, Bush, President George W. Bush's second appointee is really the only true law and order justice left. And he's often writing sole dissents against the other eight, siding with the criminal, the other eight siding with the criminal defendants time and again. I mean, perhaps the best case is one, Jeff, you've written a lot about, um, which wasn't this year, but last year. This year there's a follow on case uh, in some ways, but that's a case called Riley versus California. And that case decided unanimously said that when the police uh, stop you, arresting you, they can't search your smartphone. Why? Because you have all sorts of information on it, and without a warrant, you're not, the police aren't allowed to do so. They say it would violate the Fourth Amendment. Jeff, I think you've called this the Brown versus Board of uh, Education for, Civil Liberty, for, for, uh, for Privacy in the digital realm. Um, it's a massive decision, and, so, and that's true in a bunch of areas. Even on the one thing that the prosecutors won this year, law enforcement won, the lethal injection case in which the court, by a five to four decision, upheld a lethal injection protocol, uh, which uh, was fairly gruesome, there was a two-justice dissent by Justices Breyer and Ginsburg announcing for the first time their opposition to the death penalty in all cases, in all forms, uh, as unconstitutional. I think that's a striking development. I suspect that in you know, a few years we'll come back here and it very well may be that the death penalty is declared unconstitutional by a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. Last question, the, sort of, uh, the same one I asked to Senator Coons. Broadly, do you think the court is acting politically or according to their constitutional methodologies? Oh, I, I don't think that they're acting politically. I mean, I think that these are nine people who do have some strong ideologies. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that Justice Alito sides with prosecutors. I think that was evident at every minute of his confirmation hearings. And we shouldn't be surprised that Justice Kagan has a more, has a, has a more skeptical attitude toward the state. These are things that they are well known for and so on. And indeed, I don't think we should even be surprised by Chief Justice uh, Roberts' decisions this term. I mean, when he testified in his hearings in 2005, he said, I'm an umpire, I'm going to act like an umpire, I'm going to call balls and strikes. And, and I'd written a letter in support of him because I'd worked for him, uh, and all my friends on the left just said, this is po basically poppycock. He's going to just act politically in, in, his, in his partisan uh, impressions and, and wishes. And, you know, this year, and there are many other examples too, but this year really shows that's not true. He meant what he said at his confirmation hearings. I don't think that he is the full, full solid believer in judicial restraint that's been painted because of things like the Voting Rights Act, which he voted to strike down. But nonetheless, I do think that he is trying very hard to call balls and strikes, as are his colleagues. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking America's greatest brother-in-law, Neil Katyal.
And now, if we're not cooking well enough, we have the privilege of hearing from two of America's greatest journalists. Please join me in welcoming David Leonard and David Frum. intimidating to follow those two. Those guys are extremely I would love to get impressive, as are you. So great to see you, David. Welcome. Thank you. The Phil Donahue of the Constitution welcomes you to our third <laughs> installment have to, here. Have to do a more our deep drive. Absolutely. Well, you've just heard uh, a U.S. Senator and a former uh, Solicitor General saying that the court was acting not politically, but constitutionally. D David, do you agree? And as you and your colleagues cover the court, is that the presumption that you operate under? I, I'm not a constitutional scholar. Um, uh, I, I think that the, so, so I, I take seriously the views of others who believe that they were op operating constitutionally. I think one of the striking things is that this court was moving toward a much more political, being a much more political court. I mean, it really was the first one was it in history or in decades and decades in which you very often had all the justices appointed by one party's president on one side and all the justices appointed by the other party's president on the other side? And I think what we've seen with the more mixing up, with Breyer being with the, with the right, increasingly with Roberts being with the left and Kennedy being with the left, I think we've seen a court that setting aside the constitutional issues, which I know is their job, I think we've seen a court that will be able to command more respect because there are more often these mixed coalitions that are ruling. David, political or constitutional court? Um, I think on the healthcare case, it's, it is a political court. The, the, this was a political decision. Um, and I, I think the politics of it are very sympathetic, which is uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who I'm sure deplores the Affordable Care Act as a matter of legislation, said, if you challengers want me, a judge, to blow this thing up, you have to give me a better set of reasons. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States has not struck down a major social reform of this kind since the early 1930s. Um, the, when the last time the Supreme Court tried it, it nearly destroyed the Supreme Court along the way. Um, and the argument for blowing up the ACA here was so hyper-technical that uh, politically-minded institution naturally gave pause and say, this is not our job. This is, you're at, this is too big an ask of this court on too slender a basis. David, you and your colleagues at the New York Times are providing the best coverage of the court uh, in America. Adam Liptak is, is as good as it gets, but you also cover the social implications of decisions like the marriage equality decision. Just tell us about how you, as an editor, think about uh, parceling out the different dimensions, assigning stories, and what's your obligation to report it? I think the Supreme Court is an undercovered institution. Um, so Adam Liptak, um, as you said, is a, is a national treasure. I'm extremely fortunate to be his colleague. Um, uh, one of the amazing things about Adam is the, the combination of his intellect and his speed. Sometime, just for fun, um, log on to the New York Times website and see how fast Adam Liptak's first story comes out after a decision. It's truly a remarkable thing. Adam Liptak's the only person we have covering the Supreme Court, and I think there's an argument um, that, that that's a mistake, that we should devote more resources toward it. The Supreme Court is extremely important. Um, uh, it's fascinating as well. Um, and so one of the things that we've tried to do is cover it a little bit more richly. So we, we put out this graphic that you were kind enough to mention before, noting that this was the most liberal term uh, just based on the right-left 
outcomes um, in decades, right? And as Neil said, there are ways in which that's not a perfect measure because they're taking more conservative cases. But we had this moment of, wait a second, are we gonna put out this chart saying this is the most liberal term before the King v. Burwell case, before same-sex marriage, and then look like a bunch of idiots? And we said, you know what? We cover the economy in real time. We cover Congress in real time. We should stop treating the Supreme Court like so much of a church and we should cover it like an institution in real time. Um, it felt good because the, the story didn't look bad, but I think one of the things we're trying to do is give cover to the Supreme Court that treats it more like a living, breathing institution and less like some holy chamber. David, you're one of the country's leading journalists on the web. How do you write about the court? And generalizing about the web is difficult, but there, there's a lot of partisan commentary on the left and the right. Uh, do you think that the internet does the court justice? No. Uh, the greatest problem with the internet, and for, at the Atlantic we are more insulated from these pressures than most, um, but the internet loves identity politics and hates all other kinds of politics. Um, and one of the things that I, I find endlessly frustrating as a journalist is um, you, know, you, have, you have a decision like, should the federal and, or state governments regulate the electrical grid? And that's an industry that's worth about $800 billion a year on which the whole future development of the country turns. And if you were to write that article, you might get a few thousand clicks. Um, if, uh, if, however, you have some yet micro advance on the latest hot take on the Bruce Jenner, Catelyn Jenner transformation, that's million. And uh, I mean, the Atlantic is immune. I think the New York Times is largely, but you know, not wholly immune, um, and, and no one, I mean, everyone else uh, succumbs to clickbait. And so many of the court's cases, and so many of the court, the most important things our institutions do um, involve things that involve a lot of money, but not a lot of race, sex, class, identity. Um, next term, the court is going to face a voting rights case that is so potentially revolutionary in its implications, and, um, and yet, I invite you, Evan Well v. Abbott, which is going to decide um, the whole future of what state districts look like in, the, in an increasingly diverse country. Uh, we can talk about that some more later if you want. Uh, I defy you uh, to find much warning to the citizenry about what may be coming and how explosive this could be. And as we talked about, the court is also going to take the affirmative action case, which there will be enormous interest in. They are taking an affirmative action case shortly after they took another affirmative action case, which I defer to you on this, Jeff, but seems a signal that there could be a sweeping ruling. And I think, look, I think the advocates of affirmative action have made a big mistake in this country. I think they've made a substantive mistake and a tactical mistake, which is they have not shown a lot of interest in class-based affirmative action. If you look at our leading universities, they say they do class-based affirmative action. They mostly don't. They give huge preferences to legacies, people whose parents went there, to varsity athletes, and to underrepresented minorities. They do not give large preferences to lower income students. And I think what that has done is that has left a lot of people in the judiciary and in the public, and the Supreme Court does pay attention to public opinion, uncomfortable with affirmative action, despite how much racial discrimination there still is in this country. And I think there's a really good chance that we're gonna have a sweeping ruling on affirmative action. And if we do, I think the traditional defenders of affirmative action should start by looking at themselves for the system that they've constructed that has become so vulnerable to attack. Just because that's such a provocative point, the counter is that places that have tried class-based affirmative action, like the University of California, got poor white kids, and the only place that class-based affirmative action produces racially diverse results is where there's geographic concentration of minorities, as in Texas, where they tried a 10% plan where the 
kids who are the top 10% of every high school get in, but that wasn't enough, so they had to do the add-on. So what's the response? So the response to that is that it is true if you do affirmative action based solely on income, you get a very racially homogenous group. That's not fair. You get, you get a lot of white kids and a lot of Asian kids. You get, a, you get a homogenous group. You do not have a lot of Latinos and African Americans. However, if you define privilege and opportunity more broadly, and I think we should, and you include things like family structure, and you include things like wealth, in part because of legislated housing discrimination, African Americans have a lot less wealth, even at the same income, as whites do. If you include your neighborhood income, not just your own income, then you actually can use class-based affirmative action to end up with a racially diverse group. The other thing I would say is, let's say the percentage of racial diversity falls by two percentage points, or one percentage point, but the number of poor kids across all races rises by 15 percentage points, Maybe that's okay. Maybe the only judgment shouldn't be what happens to the percentage based on racial categories, but we should have a broader view of this. David, when you, or if you were to write about the affirmative action case, would you focus on the constitutional arguments or on the kind of policy arguments that David has identified? Me, as a writer, I, I um, look, I'm very sociologically minded. And I, I don't, and I think even judges are less influenced by pure logic than they would have us believe. Um, and you see that in the way, in the very, there, in the wake of the same-sex marriage case, there are going to be a series of attempts to bring polygamy cases before the courts. And it's going to be like putting them into a Cuisinart. I mean, they are going to go absolutely nowhere. And at some level, as a number of wiseacres on the internet have said, that's not very logical. And the answer is going to be, and that doesn't matter very much, because uh, the reason same-sex marriage prevailed was because very large numbers of Americans and even larger numbers of elite Americans and even larger numbers of lawyers and judges were persuaded that um, same-sex marriage presented, uh, you know, involved real claims of genuine rights by people with a benign and unchangeable personal characteristic with no serious risk of harm to anything else. And they're going to look at polygamy and they're going to see that it originates in the oppression of women and child marriage and uh, child rape in many cases. And they're, and the fact that these arguments may look formally similar is not going to interest them very much. They are just going to rip through it. Um, but it, I think I, I don't see a way to avoid the, the policy content, and certainly for citizens, the policy content. Um, you know, there is there's a certain, as you'll remember from your law teaching, back in the early 19th century, there's a certain kind of British judge in particular who almost seemed to delight in reaching a completely perverse and antisocial result because that showed how committed you were to the law. Um, and, that, and, and then you would shrug your hands and say, and it's somebody else's job to fix it. I don't think judges really do that in real life. I think King B. B. Burwell is an example of this. And on the voting rights case I mentioned before, um, that is going to be a fascinating challenge because both answers are so terrible. Tell, tell us about the case. Okay, so the case is this. Um, as you all know, uh, the law says that there has to be in a, in a, a district in, um, one person, one vote, and the districts can't um, vary too much. But the question is, too much of what? Um, is that at, when you have a state, like Texas in this case, where there are large numbers of illegal immigrants who are not entitled to the vote, do the districts have to be equal according to raw population or numbers of voters? If you make the districts equal according to raw population, some districts will have very large numbers of illegal immigrants and, the and, the sm and small numbers of voters. You'll create a kind of system of rotten boroughs. Some voters will have much more power than others, and some representatives will have to worry a lot less about pleasing everybody in their constituency than others. 
On the other hand, if you say it's one citizen, one voter, one potential voter, one vote, then you will dramatically reduce the representation of a minority, especially Latino districts, and dramatically enhance the power of, of white voters. And by the way, tip all through the Southwest and into California, the balance of power in state legislatures, because these only, these, this case, I think, only affects state legislatures from Democrat to Republican. Um, so which, which is the worst evil? Um, endorsing the rotten boroughs as they exist now with all of the terrible political unfairnesses and the corruption and the bad representatives you get because they don't have to worry about sometimes 60% of the people in their districts? Or do you, as a judge, work this political revolution on behalf of the Republican Party? I don't see that there's a really good answer, and I don't know, uh, and as a pure matter of law, I don't know how you reason your way to the better outcome. Justice Felix Frankfurter warned of all this in his dissent from a one-man, one-vote case years ago, where he said by entering the political thicket, the court was coming up with standards without precise means of uh, measuring what exactly an equal population was. Uh, David, thoughts on the voting rights cases which have been so divisive to the country, as Senator Kuhn said, from Shelby County to uh, the uh, redistricting case to this one coming up, how do you cover it and write about it? I think that if you think about these cases as a whole, most of them are bad for Democrats. I think Democrats, liberals, rejoiced at this year's case. It was Kennedy and four liberals. But actually, the states that are most likely to create independent districting panels are liberal states. Right? And so the way, so that actually hurts Democrats, right? Because in a state that is Republican controlled, they're going to gerrymander for Republicans. An independent district, an independent commission would, would hurt the Republicans' ability to do that. In a liberal state, they're going to gerrymander for Democrats. An independent commission would help Republicans. Liberal states are the ones that tend to have independent commissions. So even though liberals like this decision, it actually may be bad for them narrowly. And you put these all together, and I think it's a reminder that while the Democrats have a lot of advantages right now, in particular, the Republican Party does not know how to talk to people who are not white and who are under the age of 30. Right? And they do not seem to be making any progress on either of those issues. The Democrats also have a huge problem, which is they are doing terribly at the state legislature level. They have a huge gap in the House. They are not just a minority. They are a, a minority that is way, way behind. And Democratic voters don't vote in large numbers in the midterms. And when you add these cases on top of that, I think the Democratic Party really has a problem in which it needs to ask itself, what year plausibly might we get the House back the way things are going? And I think one of the most, if one of the most urgent things for the Republican Party is how to talk to a base that doesn't look like the United States of 1950, one of the most urgent things for Democratic Party is to realize it's not all about the White House. How do we have a strategy for turning out our voters in midterms and winning local elections? Because it's a huge problem for the party. To follow that, the great British jurist of before the First World War, A.V. Dicey, um, had a scathing comment on how out of date the law gets. He said, the opinions of the bench are, sorry, the opinions of the bar are typically those of the previous generation and the opinions of the bench of the generation before that. Um, in this complex of voting rights and affirmative action cases, we really see that because all of these, our, our thinking, or the judicial thinking about these cases is formed in the era of black and white America. Um, affir uh, affirmative action is uh, a reparation um, from whites to blacks, voting rights. It is about protecting um, People, uh, the disenfranchised black communities, especially in the South, but also in the West, um, from oppression by local white majorities. And all of these instincts and habits and precedents look increasingly unsteady in, a, um, in America in which 
black Americans are one minority among many, in which within minutes, white mi Americans will be one minority among many. And you have to say, if it, um, it was one thing when you had affirmative action on behalf of a minority against a majority. What happens when you have a minor, uh, affirmative action on behalf of some minorities against other minorities? That begins to look less like reparation and more like a spoil system. With voting rights, um, it is, it's very clear why the United States government has an interest uh, in preventing white had an interest in preventing white majorities from suppressing the votes of black minorities. That, uh, this goes back to the greatest the, um, civil war. We're celebrating um, uh, the 150th anniversary, marking, I shouldn't say commemorating, the 150th anniversary of the end of that war, Reconstruction. There's a long and bad history. Um, does, do the precedents protecting the voting rights of blacks really create greater political power for those who have recently entered the country illegally? Um, should their political power be enhanced because of the civil, post-Civil War experience? Why? How does that make sense? Um, and as the country becomes new, a lot of the things we used to think about it become obsolete. Uh, you've raised a profound question of constitutional translation. This is the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. Uh, this afternoon, David Rubenstein and I are going to be talking about that history. And at the Constitution Center, we are having a five-year initiative to talk about the historic and contemporary meaning of those amendments. David, is the press, but this is fairly wonky stuff. Yep. Is the New York Times able to cover this issue of race and history in all of its complexity or not? I'm sure we're not. <laughs> um, uh, I, think, uh, I think one of the things that we're trying to think about is whether we have a diverse enough staff. And I'll answer that question. We do not. Um, and uh, uh, my boss, our editor, uh, executive editor, is African-American. And I think it's one of these things, um, as is the case in the country at large, right, in which there are shining examples of ways in which the United States really has made progress on race. Um, if you haven't listened to uh, oh, President Obama on Mark Maron's podcast, I would encourage you to do so. It's an hour. It's fascinating. And, and Obama said, look, I often have young people who say to me, nothing's any better on race. And Obama said, listen, unless you were a black man living in the South in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, don't tell me we haven't improved on race. We have. And we have, but we haven't made nearly enough progress. Racism against African Americans is a unique issue. It's unlike any other situation we have in this country because of the history. And I think there are a lot of institutions, including the New York Times, that are saying to ourselves, how can we do a better job covering this issue? How do we make sure that our own background and our own biases don't color the way we look at it in a way that, uh, that harms our readers? David, last word to you. Some of the most riveting sessions at this incredible Ideas Festival have dealt with the question of over-criminalization. And it is striking to see the unexpected uh, alliance between libertarian conservatives and civil libertarian liberals about the injustice of putting so many young African-American men in jail. David, are there other issues involving the law where you detect similar uh, alliances? And is it helpful to have that kind of consensus uh, in order to achieve reform? Um, we are seeing here um, incremental progress at work. Look, the rate of incarceration in the United States has already peaked. It peaked in 2007, and, and we're coming down from that level. Um, we have had, the, this may be the greatest social transformation that any of us have lived with, even bigger than the transformation on race, which as you say is incomplete, and that is um, the success in combating crime. Um, the United States today has less crime than at any time since good statistics began in the middle 1970s. It has less crime than at any point since 
anything like what statistics began in the 1930s. Um, and given what we know about how violent the country was in the 19th century, it's probably fair to say the United States is safer today from crime than at any time in the history of the Republic. And some of that was due to the very harsh measures that were taken in the, in the 1990s, massive incarceration, longer sentences for more people. But there comes a point where you think, you know, it's also very expensive, it's very destructive to the people who are caught up in the system and their families and children. Can we take some risks and experiment on the way down, and the country is doing that without so far adverse effect. I would argue, for caution, I'm not a libertarian conservative, I think we need to go quite slow on this um, because the reduction in crime is the thing that has made possible so much of the racial progress. It is what has taken a lot of the culture issues off the boil. Um, it is what, it, it is the, it, um, it has really changed the way our cities operate. And, I think it's a tremendous, it shouldn't, it's an accomplishment that shouldn't be put readily at risk. So experiment incrementally um, and uh, cautiously. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking David Leonard and David Frum. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.